It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher. And uh, it's summer and I'm trying to enjoy the summer by but I'm also working probably like a lot of you. It's so funny. My kids, I, they're excited about summer vacation, going to camp, going on trips. And I travel a lot during the summer for work and we were in the car and I remind them, you guys were on summer vacation, but I still have to work. And they thought they were like, oh, that's so sad. They were like, we, when's the last time you had a, sum, a complete summer vacation? And it took me a minute. And I was like, it's been a couple of years where I could take like the entire summer off. And they were like, oh. <laughs> so then they said they were going to start a campaign, a Justice for Joy's summer campaign. And part of me felt good about it because, number one, that they are so justice-minded that they were like, we got to start a campaign because it's not fair. <laughs> that god mommy that mommy doesn't have summer vacation like we do and then they started a strategy and they were like well who do we need to talk to and you know to to get you a summer vacation and I felt so kind of good about that because like they have in their mindset when things are unjust that they need to find out who's the decision maker and start a campaign in order to get me a summer but I'm my own boss so I'm the decision maker. So I don't know how they campaigned to me to give me a whole summer off. And I reminded them on how they are able to afford vacations and trips and a house and all of the things that they like is because both me and my husband work and get money to provide for them. And then the Justice for Joy summer campaign was over. Anyway, <laughs> so I have some, I have a good conversation for you later on in the show. I'm going to be talking to a long-standing ballot access person, Richard Winger, who's going to come to the front of the class and talk about ballot access. I know it's not a sexy topic, or at least you think it's not a sexy topic, but these kind of laws and rules and policies have a huge effect on who actually makes it on our ballot. And I did this conversation, one, for you to understand how people make it on the ballot in general, but two, for those of you who are considering, and I hope you are strongly considering running local, not to say that we don't need people also running for Congress, but I need more people running local running in state legislatures and particularly looking at next year, I want you to be prepared and know all of the laws and the rules necessary so that you can make it on the ballot, which is the first step before you even go out and try to get people or convert people to vote for you. So we're going to have that conversation with Richard Winger. But I wanted to bring up something that I read this week that affects a lot of us. And it's this article, and I'm going to share it out on social media. There'll also be a link to it in the show notes that I read in Politico about water access in Southwest countries. So not sure how many of you have been following this, and particularly if you're in the seven states that we lie on the Colorado liver. That's California, Nevada, Arizona, 
Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. So those are the seven states over on the West Coast that rely on the Colorado River for water. And there's this article, and then, of course, I went down the rabbit hole about how the federal government is going to step in if these states cannot negotiate a deal in terms of water access because of consumption. The Colorado River is like, you know, near, like nearly gone. Like the level, like it's so low that they said they found like human remains that were buried underneath and like a sunken ship and things of that nature. Like that's how low. And I'm sure those of you who live in those states or in those areas have seen this on the news about people trying to reduce water use because of droughts, because of the low reservoir levels, the low water values. So the federal government is going to step in and set standards if the states cannot come to an agreement in terms of their access. So, you know, That made me go down a rabbit hole because in the United States, we have not had to deal with serious concerns about water access for a very long time. I just watched the series on LBJ and how one of his campaign things about him going to Senate was promising water access to rural communities in Texas, um, where women were still going to the well (laughs) to get water for their communities and for their families. So we have not had to deal with that on a large scale for some time. And now we have reservoirs that are at dangerously low levels. This is all connected, of course, in terms of climate change that people want to deny, but whatever. But Reading these kinds of stories make me think about how I individually can change my habits. But, you know, me changing my individual habits is a drop in the bucket. There is this larger concern. It's not like I use gallons and gallons of water individually. There are whole industries that use water. Um, Whether that be farming, whether that be an energy, private businesses, in addition to households. And so we may have to have a come to Jesus overall, private companies, governments and individuals about how we change our practices as Americans, as industry, so that we don't run out of water. (laughs) And you may think it's an abundance, but listen, there are countries all over the world who can tell you their water is not in an abundance and think about like like how we waste and the impact that it has on us. The average American, this is according to the EPA, uses an average of 82 gallons of water a a day at your home. Can you think about that, right? And I'm sure some of y'all looking at y'all water bill, (laughs) you've also thought about how you can reduce as well. But 40 out of 50 state water managers also expect water shortages under average condition in some places, in some states over the next decade. So when we're talking about climate change thing and certainly the Supreme Court ruling and others have an impact on us being able to do that, we're not like, why do we always have to think 
about these things like in crisis mode, right? Why are Americans like this? We're just like, we have to wait until the thing is almost gone and like people are paying high prices for it before we make changes. Why do we have to do that? Why not heed the warnings and create policies and create changes so that people can gradually get to these points rather than waiting until we're in dire straits? Why are we like this? I don't know. But I did find this very interesting and particularly that the federal government needed to step in if these states can't come to an agreement. If you are on the West Coast or if you do go down the rabbit hole like I have done, you'll see there's a lot of conversation about it. A lot of news media on the West side are taking or trying to come up with and taking sides in terms of how consumption can be reduced. Particularly, this is going to have an impact on our food supply because what do farmers need? Water, (laughs) whether they be for their cattle, whether it be for crops. And that will then have an impact on our food and therefore having an impact on the supply chain again. So all of these things are interconnected. A government is trying, federal government is uh, doing what it can, but given the uh, ruling, it's going to be interesting that if these states start suing the federal government, whether it be the EPA, the FDA or others, when they start suing the federal government and telling states that, you know, the states telling the federal government that they can't impose these different policies or restrictions on them, it's going to be very interesting. So I wanted to bring that to your attention, of course because I went down the rabbit hole of it, you're going to benefit because I'm going to do a whole a whole nother conversation about that, about water access, about utilities overall, and how when we don't do anything connected to climate change, how that's going to impact our daily lives. But I'm going to take a break here and we'll be back with my conversation with Richard Winger. We'll be right back. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I will let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams. And joining us at the front of the class is Richard Ringer, one of the preeminent experts on ballot access in this country. He has been publishing the Ballot Access News since 1985. It's a monthly print publication, also online, covering ballot access law across the country. He serves on the editorial board of the Election Law Journal and has been accepted as an expert on election law and federal courts in about 12 states. And he's testified in about 400 cases. So I want to welcome to the front of the class, Richard Winger. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Joy. Um, That's quite a feat, 400 cases. Do you keep like a ticker in your office of how many cases you've testified in? I didn't used to. And then an attorney told me I should create a civic, a CV curriculum by by. Yeah. um, So that's when I realized I needed to start keeping a list. (laughs) It's not easy. Sometimes I forget to add things. Right, right. Well, I want to get to the ballot access newsletter and just your overall career in that. But since it's your first time on the show, I want to start where we start with every guest by you telling us the story of your first civic action. (laughs) Well, my father was a farmer in California. And like most farmers, he was a Republican. So naturally, as a little kid, I thought I was a Republican. And I remember 
the Contra Costa County Fair was in my hometown of Antioch. So when I was 12, um, we had a Republican congressman named Baldwin. And uh, he was there. It was the first politician I ever met. He was at the fair. So he had me and a few of my friends go around putting um, bumper stickers for, for Baldwin on, on parked cars, which now that I think about it, doesn't seem like it was a very good idea because maybe people didn't want a bumper sticker. <laughs> that, that's what my memory tells me. That, yeah, think, you know, every now and then you think back to things that you did as a youngster or a child and you're just like, wait a minute. One of the things that I did way back when was putting flyers and stuff in mailboxes on Long Island and like knowing now that it's just like, uh, that was illegal. Uh <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it's a very technical illegality that you need to worry about it. Right, right. I just thought it was, I was like, oh, they'll get it when they get their mail. And then it was like, um, you probably shouldn't do that because that's illegal now. So, uh, <laughs> um, so we'll forget, we'll forgive us of our youth <laughs> in, in those instances. So we have been talking about different reforms over the last couple of weeks, besides obviously voting rights for individual voters, just talking about the different aspects of our governance overall and our elections overall that we should think a little bit more deeply about that we should shine the light on that most people are not aware of what happens or what's included in an election. One of those things that I've talked about, you know, since I started this show some five years ago was, you know, one, when we think about presidential elections, everybody think it's one big election, but it's actually many different elections <laughs> that occur. And that also people have to, quote, qualify to appear on a ballot. And in each state, it's different. There is no universal way where in which people qualify for the ballot, not only for uh, president, but you know, state legislature, city council, and things of that nature. And particularly if you are not a member of one of the dominant political parties, be it Republican or Democrat, it's extremely difficult to have access uh, to the ballot. So I wanted you to start with a, a primer in terms of that reality and where, and where we exist in terms of ballot access for a general person who may want to run for state legislature, for city council, or even president. What is the process or the frustration of having ballot access? Right. First, let me start by saying in the beginning of this country, there were no government printed ballots. A ballot was something that a voter was free to make him, himself or herself. <clears throat> and so with no government printed ballots, the government had total no control over who could run for office. <clears throat> there was no such thing as a petition to get on the ballot or a declaration of candidacy, or a filing fee, because the government had nothing to do with it. And uh, it's ironic that as voting rights in general in the United States have improved steadily through time from the beginning, the one area we've gone backwards is the freedom to run for office. 
because back then anybody could run for office and now you have to comply with a lot of state laws and how you get your name on the ballot. Now some states have fair ballot access, but some states have horrible ballot access, especially if you're not a Republican or a Democrat. The absolute worst law in the country is Georgia's law on how a person who's not a Republican or Democrat can run for the U.S. House of Representatives. Their law was passed in 1943, the year I was born, 79 years ago. And in 79 years, there's not a single minor party candidate who's been able to get on the ballot for U.S. House in Georgia. And no independent has been able to comply with the law since 1964. And it totally contradicts the, the opinion of the founding fathers because they thought they wanted the U.S. House of Representatives to be the most democratic branch of the federal government. And yet in Georgia, that's the one thing you can't run for if you're not a Republican or a Democrat. We finally won a case, a lawsuit against that law last year. I was ecstatic. That was in the U.S. District Court. And then early this year, the 11th Circuit took it away and upheld that law. They said it wasn't severe. Can you imagine? We had evidence in the case from 20 people who had really tried hard to get on the ballot for U.S. House. And, and the court still said, well, we don't think it's severe. So. Uh, <laughs> wow. I mean, so it, it just reminds me, you know, one, I didn't know about that fact about ballots, that the there wasn't ballots done by, you know, the government, be the federal government or state um, or local government. So basically you could take a piece of paper, write who you wanted and put it in the voting booth. I mean, the voting box. So one, that's something I didn't know. Thanks. <laughs> that's a cool thing to know. Two, as you mentioned, you know, something as uh, political parties have, have now this stronghold on the Democratic Republic that wasn't baked into the original plan for the government right? That it's not baked in. And yet over obviously time, we've now seen stacked upon stacked and that it makes it difficult from a legal basis because now you have all of this precedent to deal with of dismantling the stronghold that the two dominant parties have on our political infrastructure. You know, obviously you've been covering this for a very long time. I do believe, even though I identify currently as, you know, one particular party, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's, I think it does a disservice to our politics and to our governance overall to say that people must fit into one of these two boxes and that only people that fit in boxes are eligible to run for public office. And if you don't, we're going to stack all of these, you know, thing, these hoops that you must jump through. Can you talk a bit about what those hoops look like? Like, what are the other qualifications that we put on minor or third parties in order to get access, uh, ballot access? Generally, the tough states, and, and again, not all states are, are bad. But among the states that are bad, they just generally require the most common problem is requiring a huge number of signatures to get on the ballot. And boy, it's 
I, I don't know if you have any friends who, who circulate petitions for a living, but boy, are they getting big money these days. For some reason, there's a shortage of people that want to go out in the street and collect signatures on petitions for money. And they're getting three, four, five dollars a signature these days. Um, California, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we, we, I'm in New York. And so uh -huh. New York uh, is one of those restrictive places where right now in the middle of what we call the petition period, where for each different category, including Congress, you have to collect a certain amount of signatures in order to have ballot access. And this is for the primary, you know, and obviously for the general, if you are from an independent uh, party or a uh, minor party, it's also for the parties themselves to have a ballot line, right? Just a couple of years ago here in New York State, one of the political parties, Working Families Party, had to go through this where they have to, every certain amount of years, get signatures all across the state. <laughs> I think it's a percentage of the population um, that's registered to vote in order to keep the line that they have on the ballot. And, you know, the governor at the time sort of, you know, dug his finger in the wound to try to get rid of that political party as well. So those are, and I know in some states it's a, it's a fee. I mean, I've talked to candidates where they have to pay $10,000 or uh, uh, something in order to get on the ballot. Yeah. The, the worst filing fee for the general election is Oklahoma, where you can get on the ballot as an independent for president or a minor party candidate for president without a petition, but you have to pay $35,000. Jesus, $35,000. Yeah. Anyway, let's, let's talk about New York because New York, has so many problems and they got much, much worse last year when Governor Cuomo got mad at the Working Families Party and he kind of coerced the New York legislature into terrifically increasing the burdens. Uh, he, he, put, he put his ideas in the budget bill and they had to pass the budget and they couldn't amend it. So they had no say. Governor Cuomo wanted it and we got it. He increased the number of signatures for statewide independent or the nominee of an unqualified party from 15,000 to 45,000. And they increased the difficulty of qualifying as a party. The old law required 50,000 votes for governor and the new law required 2% of the vote for, for president and governor. So pow, all of a sudden the green party, the libertarian party, the SAM party and the independence party were knocked off the ballot because they couldn't get the new 2%. Not only that, in 2019, the legislature moved the petition deadline for independent candidates from August until May. So we have the problem now that if the libertarian and green parties want to be on the ballot in, for statewide office this year in New York, they have six weeks to get 45,000 signatures. They have to get 500 signatures from each of half the US districts. It's illegal for them to hire people who don't live in New York to work on those petitions. And I don't know if they're gonna be able to make it. I'm afraid not. 
in 2020, those parties were still on the ballot because the new law hadn't taken effect, but no new party, no statewide independent got in the ballot in New York. And that was the first time since 1956 in which not a single statewide petition succeeded in New York because of raising the number from 15,000 to 45,000. It may happen again this year. <clears throat> now the Working Families Party and the Conservative Party do manage to get 2%. So they're still on the ballot. So we'll see, but it's quite likely that in 2022 for offices like governor and US Senator, there won't be anybody to vote for in New York except the Democrat and the Republican because the Working Families Party will cross endorse the Democrat and the Conservative Party will cross endorse the Republican. So for the first time since 1956, New Yorkers will be stuck with voting for a Republican or a Democrat for offices like governor and senator. It's it's possible some petitions will succeed. We'll just have to see. But this yeah. is a serious setback for, for voting rights in New York. And the New York Times has not even discussed this. It's very disappointing to me. Yeah. So can you talk a bit about what having these barriers for minor parties, what it does to our politics overall, what does it, what problem does it create overall? And why should people listening be supportive of changing laws to have more fair ballot access? Well, for one thing, these laws and certain other kinds of laws that we haven't talked about, like certain campaign finance laws and rules and who can get into debates, have left the United States stuck with the same two major parties since 1856. <laughs> We're the only country in the world where new parties have not formed in the last hundred years and taken power. Even in Great Britain, which is a two-party system, they have fair ballot access in Great Britain. So around the 1918 era, one of the old major parties, it didn't die off, but it stopped being a major party. That was the Liberal Party. And instead, a new party grew up to replace it, the Labor Party. Um, in France, the current president, and I think his name is pronounced Macron, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> he got elected as the nominee of a brand new party in March. That party hadn't even existed a few years ago, but because France has fair ballot access, it was possible for the French people to support a brand new party that was so successful, it, it won the election. Same way in Ukraine, uh, in their 2019 election, President Zelensky was the nominee of a brand new party that hadn't even existed a few years ago. This happens all around the world. New part. Oh, and in Mexico, the president of Mexico is um, was the nominee of a, of a fairly new party. So in the rest of the democratic world, people can start new parties and they can win. But here in the United States, we've had the Republican and Democratic parties since 1856. And we just can't get a new party going because of all these these barriers. Uh, we. One of the worst things is the commission and presidential debate rules for getting into the general election debates. 
this is not ballot access, but it's just as harmful as ballot access. They will not let anybody but the Democratic and the Republican nominees into the general election presidential debates. And so other parties can't get a foothold. If you're not in the debate, you're considered a nobody. And, uh, and then there's also discriminatory campaign finance laws. But I'll, I'll let you take charge of the So how is, this, how is this not um, unconstitutional? It should be. <laughs> like, because, I mean, from, from me standpoint, my standpoint is basically restricting or limiting political thought to, and, and you're not able to have full political expression because you are forced to pick either party. It, I mean, it's the same. It, it's one of the things in, in when I had the opportunity to have a conversation with Bernie Sanders of bringing that up in terms like there's no way that both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton should be in the same political party. Right. Like it's <laughs> like in terms of the, the the gulf of political thought, I can have the same thing for a Republican Party. Right. Like, you know, there's no way, you know, that a, a Donald Trump and a, I guess, Mitt Romney, uh, Mitt Romney <laughs> right, are in the same like, it, you know, in the same party. And it's not just about, you know, style you know, in terms of political style, it's more about how you believe government should operate, you know, what you believe in terms of taxes and finance and, you know, like there are fundamental differences between using those two as examples, right? And so for me, I find it unconstitutional that we limit, that states limit or create undue burden to other political parties. And I, I don't understand from a legal standpoint, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't understand from a legal standpoint how it continues in practice. Part of the problem is our, our U.S. Constitution doesn't have an explicit right to vote in it. That's, ah, that goes back to a lesson I've taught before uh, about that we have constitutional protections once you have the right to vote, but we do not have a constitutional right to vote. Right. The There's two things in the U.S. Constitution that, that could be used to protect ballot access and the, for, the freedom to form new parties. The First Amendment, the free speech part, that should be extended to the right to vote freely. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled in 1982 that there's no right to be a candidate. And in 1992, in Burdick versus Takushi, a case from Hawaii, a very sad decision, six to three, said there's no fundamental right to vote for the candidate of your choice. Hawaii banned write-ins. It was only one of only five states that did so. Now, the right to cast a write-in vote may not seem very important, but fundamentally it is, because when there's a write-in space in the ballot, that's the government saying everybody mm. has the right to vote for whoever they want. Got it, got and, it. And the Supreme Court said, it's okay to ban right in space. So once they did that, we are now all at the mercy of the government ballot access laws. If there's no right in space, then we can only vote for people who can manage to get on the ballot. 
And then if they make it hard to get on the ballot, there goes voter choice. Uh, I'm so sorry to say that <clears throat> this decision was written by Justice Byron White, who was a John Kennedy appointee, a Democrat, but he had no respect for the ability of voters to vote for whom they wanted. He wrote, and the majority signed on to this, that if Hawaii allowed right in space, that would threaten stability. He didn't define stability. It made no sense whatsoever. There was no evidence that the other 45 states that had right in space were unstable. And yet this decision, Burdick versus Takushi, is accepted by most legal commentators as a great important case and it's quoted all the time it's 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 i can hardly express how sad that is um yeah i you know and like i mentioned earlier having then you know these decades of legal precedent that continue to uphold that makes it difficult so you do need on the state level i would imagine states to sort of break out from their restrictive ballot access in order to create to push some dent in it or as we mentioned having a constitutional right to vote you know would would allow space for that as well are there any states where you are hopeful or that are, you know, sort of doing things different to allow more free or fairer ballot access? There are some very good states. Uh, I, I'm, it's a very important part that we don't condemn all 50 states. Um, and also there are some states where there are bills moving this year to ease the ballot access laws. It's a tough fight, but um, there's one moving along in Alaska, one just passed in Oregon. Now in Tennessee, the law for getting a new party in the ballot is so difficult that nobody's done it since 1968. The minor parties get on the ballot in Tennessee, but they use the much easier independent candidate procedures. So we had a bill to cut the number of signatures from about 50,000 to 10,000. But last week it, it lost in the House. It was heartbreaking because it got more yes votes than no votes. It got 45 yes votes and only 32 no votes. But the trouble is it needed 47 to pass because you have to get a majority of all the members of the body to vote for it. So if they abstain, which a bunch of them did, that's the same as voting no. So today, the same bill, well, not the same bill, but with the bill with the same provisions has a hearing in the Tennessee State Senate Committee. Maybe it'll pass there. That's the big deal for today for me, watching to see what happens. Every year, there are bills to either make the ballot access laws better or worse. I mean, these laws change constantly. That's why I have a newsletter because there's enough stuff going on to to make a newsletter possible. Oh, I don't hear you all of a sudden. As you mentioned, the ballot access newsletter tracking what is happening legally in the courts and also in the states in order to expand this. But, you know, people listening may not have been aware, right? The 
the hurdles. And it, it's interesting because at the same time, for those of us who do campaigning are engaged and active with voters, one of the things for folks who are disengaged, they say is, well, I don't support either party. <laughs> you know, I like my politics don't fit in, you know, one or two of those buckets. You know, I want to see something different. I want to, here's what I believe in. I want somebody that is going to invest for working people or for union, you know, families or rural families or things of that nature. And so having the diversity of political thought may also increase participation overall because people feel like they have a choice and don't have to whittle down their choices on different issues into one or two buckets. You know, I don't know that we have significant evidence of that, but, you know, maybe you can speak to that of, you know, providing more choice, being able to expand our participation overall. There's definitely evidence for that. Every time somebody compiles an objective list of the 10 best countries in the world or the 20 best countries in the world, invariably, at least 90% of them are countries that use proportional representation. All the best governed countries in the world use proportional representation. That is the best system. And it vastly increases voter satisfaction because votes are not wasted. In proportional representation, if a party only gets 3% of the vote, it's typically got 3% of the seats in the nation's legislative body. Now, sometimes you have to get 5%, but typically it's lower than that. That means everybody has somebody to represent them. And furthermore, uh, public opinion research shows that countries with proportional representation, there's a greater fit between what the government actually does and what the people want. And as a result, the, the countries that use proportional representation have much higher voter turnouts. So, uh, well, so let, let's explain that a little bit more because I, I teased that uh, a couple of weeks ago as well about proportional representation, that people would vote, they would vote and have this diversity of political thoughts, and it could be in political parties or, or, or candidates. And let's say, you know, the Democrats get 45%, Republicans get 15 Libertarian gets 15 <laughs> I'm being biased here. <laughs> You know, but, you know, so you have all of these uh, political parties or candidates is very there would be that representation in the legislature or in Congress. Right. So that it wouldn't just be, well, a winner take all. It would be proportional to the population, to the voting population of the country. Right. The last country that switched from a voting system like ours to proportional representation was New Zealand. And uh, they've got a multi-party system now, and it's a great government, and, and the people are happy with their government. There is a bill in Congress to have a limited form of proportional representation in voting for Congress. It doesn't get any attention at all. <laughs> it's Congressman Don, I'm not sure if he pronounces it Bayer or Bayer, B-E-Y-E-R. Mm -hmm. He's from Virginia. It's House H.R. 3863, mm -hmm. and uh, it's only got six co-sponsors. 
It never gets well, I feel like a lot of people are are embedded right into the system we have now. It's the system they know. I can remember some years ago in the beginning of my career working at a think tank and trying to explain same day voter registration and early vote mm -hmm. to elected officials at the time, local elected officials. And their first reaction was balking at it. It was just like, well, how will we know who's our voters are? How will we, <laughs> you know, right? And I feel it's not only elected officials, but even the general public would be like, well, how will we do this? Or how, you know, they immediately go to the, you know, this is the system I know. This is, you know, how I vote. This is the process. And so any change can be people, you know, balk at it and it could be disruptive, even though you are uh, demonstrating all of these benefits in terms of improving the system overall. And, you know, we, we have, Americans are special, right? Like we believe, <laughs> we believe in this exceptionalism and like our constitution is better than anybody else's ever in life. <laughs> you know, we have all of this built up and that we can't possibly change it or change our system because that would mean we're weak somehow. I don't know how, <laughs> but you know, it's a lot to chip away. I think we're getting over that. I think the idea has sunk in that our constitution, as great as it is, is way out of date. And it's not surprising. It's the oldest constitution in, in effect in any country in the world. And it needs, you know, the electoral college system, which causes um, a pronounced shift to in favor of the Republican party, it's just so wrong. Five elections now in our country's history, the person who got the most votes did not take the office. Any, even a kindergarten kid can understand that that's wrong. And uh, ironically, all five times the Democratic Party was the party that got cheated. I just wish I had a time machine. I wish I could go back to say the time of Franklin D. Roosevelt in the 30s when the Democrats were so strong, <laughs> it's almost unbelievable. After the 1936 election, there were only 16 Republicans out of 96 senators. <laughs> and the same way wow. with the House, they had, the Democrats could have put through any reform they wanted. If only they had known what would happen in the future, they could have easily passed a constitutional amendment getting rid of the Electoral College. But of course, this is a silly fantasy. There's uh, all kinds of other things we should have done too. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so very much for taking the opportunity to talk to us about this. And it's something, again, that I mentioned that most people don't think about, right? It's not something that's taught. And it's certainly not something that people think about in uh, unless they're running for office or in one of the parties or even in the minor parties. And so for us as a general public to be educated and up to date on what's happening and allow us to make the demand. Um, that we want a better system and a fairer system for more candidates, diverse candidates of different political thought and political ideology, as well as backgrounds, increases our choice and overall can in in increase participation overall in our electoral system. 
Well, it's, it's thanks to people like you and shows like this that are chipping away at that problem. I hope you get a really good viewership and do whatever it takes to, to expand your show. Thank you very much Thank for having me. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher. And I want to thank Richard Ringer for joining us and giving that basic information about how the people that appear on your ballot appear on the ballot. The ballot access is a hard thing across the country. In some places, it's easier than others in terms of the barrier of making it on the ballot. And it's really important to pay attention to some of these rules that are perhaps barriers for people, for, for us to see diverse candidates, for us to see the candidates that we want. Understanding the rules and the process is extremely important. And it's part of the reason why I teach this and it may be boring, but these kind of boring things have real world, real world implications in terms of the diversity of candidates we see, how laws and policies are enacted. So paying attention to things like ballot access, to fundraising rules and things of that nature are really important as you're charting out your strategy on candidates to support or even becoming a candidate yourself. Knowing all of those rules, we see a lot of headlines of candidates, campaigns, treasurers, and others being charged, going to jail, having to resign because of these rules and not paying attention to them. Some of them, you know, people deserve it. They're either stealing money, misappropriating money, preventing people from uh, voting, things of that nature, right? But then there are other times where rules are not being equally upheld. <laughs> and it's really important to know the process and the procedures before you step in the water. So those of you who are considering you know, not this cycle, but maybe next cycle on a local election, state legislature, really look at the ballot access rules and put a plan in place for to cover yourself and to make sure that you make the ballot and you have either the funding necessary or the laws all checked. And particularly if you're disrupting political parties or the machine, whatever it may be in your area, people use those rules to knock people off the ballot or not make the, let them make the ballot or anything like that. So this coming week, just to make a hard transition, for those of you who follow me on social media, and if you don't, follow me on Twitter at Eljoy Williams, Instagram, Twitter or Instagram, you will see that I am headed to the NASA Space Center in Maryland this coming week, I'll be there Monday night through Wednesday to be a part of this historic release of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope that was launched. And for those of you who are geeky about science, you know, not saying that you're scientists or, you know, work in space or an astrophysicist or anything, but you enjoy the um, information about space exploration, the documentaries and all that kind of stuff. Um, you can follow me on social this week because I'm going to be sharing all of that information. 
And this will prepare for an episode I'm going to do for the show called The Civics of Space Exploration, because NASA is a government agency, by the way. And although we're seeing all of these, this news about like the billionaires going to Earth's atmosphere because they're not going to space. And I really wish news would news articles would say like them going to the atmosphere, Earth atmosphere instead of going to space because they're not going to space. (laughs) But even though that's dominating the news cycle as it pertains to space exploration, NASA is a government agency and, you know, receives funding, receives public funding in addition to the partnerships that they have with private companies and corporations. We've benefited a lot as a society, as a country from space exploration. And I don't think, you know, we have that in our current context. And as, you know, funding, the popularity of funding for space exploration decreases, right? It's not like a space race and people were back in the 60s where people were trying to go to the moon, trying to go to Mars. And like, it's part of our American lexicon. And, you know, it's kind of changed over time, but we do benefit a lot from space exploration. It's a government agency. And, you know, it's not like I'm going to do a whole series on it, but we're going to do one episode. I think it'll be kind of cool to hear about how uh, civics connects to space exploration. So you can follow me on social and wait for that episode to drop. I'm so excited about that because, you know, my geeky side gets to pair with my civics political side and, you know, we'll make it all work. (laughs) So um, we'll be back next Sunday with more of Sunday Civics. In addition to the conversation about space exploration, I also have some conversations coming up about workforce, about job development, particularly in this current economy. We're getting fed all of this news and content about a recession, inflation, and also availability of jobs. We are, we know, and everybody should know that listens to this show, what the unemployment rate is doesn't really capture all of the folks that are either underemployed or looking for work. And so I want to take an opportunity to talk about work in the economy in general with some experts um, talking about youth development for disconnected or opportunity youth. That is the population of I think it's like 14, no, 16 to 24 year olds who are not in work, who don't have a job. They're not in school. And that's a critical time period. So we're going to talk to Marjorie Parker from Jobs First about that. We're also going to talk to the researchers over at the Joint Center to talk about black black unemployment, particularly post-COVID, but also how we jumpstart an economy for our communities. Because, you know, I know that there's folks focus on black entrepreneurship. And I, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, yes, I am thankful and want to big up those black entrepreneurs, those black small businesses. But even as we open up more black, black owned businesses, small businesses in our communities, that is not going to solve our unemployment crisis alone, right? We need some larger infusion (laughs) in our neighborhoods, in our communities to get people 
people to work who want to work and make sure that they are getting livable wages to be able to support themselves and their families. Also make sure that they have housing that they can afford because it makes no difference if you have a good job where like 80% of your income is going to housing. So we're going to explore all of those things as well. And I invite you to be part of the conversation. So we'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Until next time, stay civically engaged. Uh,